Welcome to Locus Podcast, What Fascinates You? Conversations with entrepreneurs, engineers, and visionaries who are driven to bring innovations to life. I'm your host, Bobby Mukherjee, and with me today is Tempest Van Skyke, PhD, from her home in Washington, DC. Tempest is a senior machine learning engineer at Microsoft and a leader in health tech innovation. Some of the ways she's driven impact is through projects like Soil Cards, Cognition Kit, and Project Physio. She's also graced the TEDx and South by Southwest stages and is a member of CSE's responsible AI board and ambassador for diversity and inclusion. I'm very excited to talk with Tempest. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Go ahead, please introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks very much. So my name is Tempest van Skyk, and I am currently a senior machine learning engineer at Microsoft in a team called Commercial Software Engineering. And my background is in biomedical engineering. So my, my PhD is in biomedical engineering. So I mainly do machine learning for healthcare. Terrific. Yeah, something that's near and dear to, to my heart as well. So in preparing for this podcast, I was looking at your LinkedIn and I noticed that you had a picture with uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Anne. And <laughs> there aren't speech bubbles, so we have no idea what the conversation was. But I'm assuming surely you were asking her if she was going to have a bigger role in the Netflix's The Crown? Yeah, absolutely. That was top of my mind. It was the Women in Science and Engineering Awards, in which I was nominated for a project called Soil Cards. So she came around and, and uh, spoke to everyone who was all of the winners. And uh, she was asking me about soil chemistry. And we had a nice discussion about agriculture, which was pretty unexpected, but lovely. Wow, that does sound super interesting. Because these are people that people don't really know. And then when they ask really thoughtful and profound questions that can be fun in a different kind of way. So sounds like a great yeah. evening. So I think congratulations are in order. I know, I believe you gave a keynote at the Conference 42, Responsible AI and Health and Principles to Practice thing. You know, we'd love to just learn a bit more about that. Why was that important to AI and health? What was the main takeaway from the presentation? So I've been working in healthcare for a long time and recently started working in responsible AI and how that relates to healthcare. So we recently published a paper discussing a model that was used to predict survival in the ICU. This model was not just an academic model, not just something theoretical, but a real world model that is actually used to benchmark ICUs. So we benchmark how the ICU really performed versus how we predicted it to perform in terms of patient survival. And it's really important when a model like that goes into production to think about responsible and in terms of monitoring data drift, having full observability of how the model is doing in the wild or potentially years into the future, and also monitoring the fairness of the predictions of the model. So how does this model behave for different patient groups? So patients of different races and genders and different diagnoses. And rather than assessing fairness once-off during model development, we actually productionized fairness monitoring so that it becomes routine. So when the data scientist goes to check accuracy of the model, they see the fairness metrics right there up front with the same kind of visual importance as the traditional metrics. And so we look at not only the kind of accuracy of how, how the model does overall, but how, how accurate is the model for each patient group? What type of errors is it making for different patient groups? And we also showed how you can actually use these fairness metrics to compare models in new ways, you know, not just saying this model is more accurate, but specifically how, how is it improved in terms of how it treats different 
patients fairly. So that was kind of a piece of work that I was had recently been speaking about. What would you say, were there things you discovered that surprised you after the fact, after you went through and, and did this work? Yeah, so we, we found that the the model was, so one of the, the main learnings that I had during this project was not to shy away from from topics like race and gender in, in healthcare. Because yeah, we know that race and gender can bring in bias into healthcare, but uh, they can also be really predictive, right? Like we've seen with COVID, it really affects different races and genders, you know, it, it affects them differently. So it's, it's an interesting, it's a difficult one in healthcare where you have these sensitive features, but they are predictive. Some approaches have been to just leave these features out of the model. Like we don't train the model on race and sex, just leave it out. So it's colorblind. But this approach doesn't actually work. We've seen models that excluded race specifically, but then were very racially biased because they used features like cost of healthcare. And in the US, cost of healthcare bakes in a lot of other biases like racial bias. So if you're not careful, the model will be very biased but very racially biased, even though you've excluded race. And if you exclude race, you have no way of tracking it. So if you actually include race, you can, you know, you know, the, the race of different groups, and then you can audit your model afterwards. So it seems like what I learned from this project is actually to capture that data and to have it and then to use it for auditing afterwards, instead of just shying away from it completely. That was a big learning for me and surprising one. Fascinating, but it does make sense. If you at least are capturing those features, you can then do ethically responsible things with them. If you're not capturing them, you don't even have that option, I would suppose. Yeah, then it's, then it's just, uh, you, then you're flying blind. So I would recommend keeping those, those metrics front and center so that you can audit them afterwards and see how is the model performing for these different groups. So I know you typically keep a pretty full plate and you have a number of projects that you talk about and you're quite passionate about. I thought it might be fun for you to kind of give a little introduction about some of these and, and why you're excited about them and what you would want people to know about them. There are a couple of these that, that we've learned about that you're involved with. So I'll, I'll go through these and you can, you can give us like a little bit of a tutorial about some of these. The first one I wanted to talk about and understand was soil cards. Tell us more about that. Right. So soil cards, actually, I was working on when I was working in a startup and it started as a medical device because that's my background and that's how I've always had this, this lens for medical devices. And I wanted to, to build a kind of a rapid, low-cost test. That was many years before COVID. I think now everyone fully appreciates why rapid, low-cost tests are, <laughs> are yes. very important. But a couple of years ago, that's, that's what I was interested in. However, I found that working in a startup, it's very difficult to get approval and, you know, to develop a medical device. You know, it's, it's, it costs a lot of money to do trials. We didn't have a lab. I, you know, I couldn't handle human blood in a startup office. So that was quite challenging. And then I kind of pivoted to agriculture instead. So this was a huge pivot from my spending my whole life in healthcare and then realizing Actually, rapid, low-cost tests and diagnostics are super valuable in agriculture, too, uh, for many of the same reasons. So I started developing what ultimately became a rapid, low-cost soil test. So whereas I would have been measuring biomarkers in blood, I was now measuring chemical markers of soil health in a soil sample, partly because it's really easy to get some soil from a pot plant 
and and test it. So that's how it came about. And and many of the same reasons that I was interested in the medical diagnostics made this a good diagnostic for health, for health for for agriculture. So for example, people in rural settings find it difficult to get to a clinic. So point of care diagnostics are really valuable for them. Likewise, farmers in the middle of a field in a rural area find it difficult to get to the national laboratory for soil testing. So you know, so, so for the very same reasons, a, a rapid soil test is, is useful. And uh, yeah, so doing some research, I found that farmers, that there's a huge amount of more than a billion farmers below the poverty line, and it's really difficult to get a good yield from your crops. So you want to fertilize, but fertilizer is expensive, and you need to know exactly what nutrients you need. So you buy the right fertilizer and use it judiciously. And this is also important for environmental reasons, so people aren't using excess fertilizer that runs off into. So if you can measure precisely your soil chemistry, then you know exactly which fertilizer to use and how much to use. So that's what soil cards with these rapid tests. I use a technology called microfluid, paper microfluidics to make these devices that are small, like credit card sized, and rapidly give you a result, which at the time was quite groundbreaking. Now, as I said, with with COVID, I think everyone appreciates these sorts of devices and why they need to be accurate and fast acting. That's hugely impactful. Was the offering aimed at farmers that were below the poverty line? Yes. Yeah. So we estimated that we could manufacture them at scale for a couple of cents each because they're made of, of paper. So yes, those are the, the users would be these farmers who could have a pack of them in the field and just use them once off. You use it once off, it gives you a result, and that result tells the farmer what type of uh, nutrients and fertilizer they should use for their specific situation and crop. Exactly. And what's unique about it is that traditional chemistry tests, which have been around for, for decades, you get these kits, you can get a kit on Amazon for $11, but they're very fussy to work with. You need lots of little containers and little spoons and you need to measure water and uh, they're really fiddly. And then at the end, you get like a, a gradient color change. And then you look at it and you're like, is this purple or pink? I'm not sure. And you measure against the color chart and it's a bit vague. These have been around for decades, but no one uses them. So a big part of the project was the usability, redesigning these tests so that they're super easy to read, taking inspiration from a pregnancy test, which is one stripe, two stripes. These actually had four stripes to say which nutrients and how much. So the difficult part was was developing this much better, I think, much better, easier to understand, more usable uh, device. Yeah, as a software guy, this is really fascinating to me because the first thing that goes to my mind is from the time that you and your team in your head came up with the idea of, look, let's draw inspiration from pregnancy tests, let's come up with, say, four stripes, and these are what the stripes are going to mean. From that moment till the time it got the first like beta, I guess, got in the hands of a farmer or someone to try it. I mean, I don't even have any idea how long would that even take to develop and get out and to try. I guess it took about, it took a couple of months to a year. So I actually strung together some some innovation grants and then used them to go back to my old PhD lab to do some some lab work. But this was also new for me. Like I didn't know anything about soil chemistry or paper microfluidics. So I had to sort of figure it out. And yeah, so I guess it took a couple of months to a year to actually get it right in the lab, sort of part-time while doing my normal full-time job and the software software development, I would say. Yeah. So before you started this project, you didn't have experience with paper fluid 
dynamic? That's right. Yeah. I had, I had seen the paper microfluidics in the lab, but I had not done it myself. So I thought, oh, that looks like cool technology. And then, you know, years later, I thought, oh, that would be, that technology would be very useful right now. Uh, and so I had to figure that out. <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like I should just, <laughs> I should go have an episode just about paper microfluid dynamics, if nothing to say it properly. But again, I, I just have so much respect for, you know, the hard sciences and what happens inside of labs and so forth, because it just feels, I feel like we're quite spoiled in software sometimes because things can move so quickly. We, you know, we can get together in a room, whiteboard a concept and a, an idea and have a beta to go very quickly. Whereas I think with the hard sciences, you have to be a bit more patient. In this case, you know, it sounds like you managed to get from a standing start to something out in the field in a, in a fairly aggressive period of time. So that's, I think that's hopeful for a lot of the more difficult problems that are out there in the world that need innovation, I would say. Yeah, well, actually, I think investing in the hardware and the sensors makes the software engineering and the data science easier because with traditional kind of gradient color changes, those are really hard to pick up with cameras. So, you know, whether you're in daylight or in sunlight or in shade makes the color look different. And then you have to build like a box around the device that you can take a reliable picture. That's really difficult in different environments. But if you have a like discrete stripes, that's really trivial to capture that kind of information. So doing that also makes the, the computer vision and then later the data processing much, much easier. So I'm a big fan of investing in getting the data capture right and the sensors right to make the data science right easier down the line. The old adage in computer science of garbage in, garbage out continues to be true. Definitely. Uh, many, many, many years later after it was first thought about. So let's move on to the next project. Tell us a bit more about Cognition Kit. So Cognition Kit is a, is a suite of, of tests that test cognition and mood and using everyday wearable devices. So tr traditionally to test your, your cognitive function, you would go to a lab and you would do it in a very controlled environment with maybe a pencil and paper test. And the reason the kinds of people that would want to test their cognition would be anyone maybe with dementia, Alzheimer's, ADHD, bipolar disorder, depression. So depression affects not only your mood, but your cognitive function too. So what we were uh, developing was wearable tests that test cognition in everyday life. So we wanted to get a fuller picture of cognition in everyday life between those lab visits. So my job was was translating these really old school cognitive tests onto new devices like the Apple Watch and making them thinking about how they could fit into everyday life and also creating some some mood tests that you know to test your mood. If in the case of depression, we wanted to test mood and cognition every single. Day. When I was involved, it was kind of the early stages developing those tests and they have gone on to be used in a couple of clinical trials now. Was it limited to the Apple Watch or were you trying a bunch of different wearable type devices? Oh, we tried a couple of different ones. We tried the Microsoft Band, we tried the Apple Watch. I think it was just those two in the end. What bio signals were you looking for? Is it like heart rate or some, something else? You can obviously uh, get a heart rate, but what we were measuring was the results from these custom tests. So tests that measure, for example, your short-term memory. So you get a notification, you get a test that says time to test your memory. And then almost like a puzzle or a game, it appears and it's done you know, fairly quickly in under a minute. 
and that's captured you know however many times a day and then the mood uh, is also done through questionnaires and things on your on your wearable so i think we were capturing some biometrics but it was mainly the results of these cognitive tests Gotcha. So one of our MLEs recently worked with NASA on wearables for Astrum. And I was just curious, through your experience with the Cognition Kit, if what you felt was, you know, a trickier thing to solve with wearables in general, like on the hardware side, on the software side, or, or something in between? Yeah, so I've done a couple of wearables projects, not, not really intentionally. They just, they just they find me wearable projects. But I'd say it's probably human factors that are the hardest things. So we did a, a project with, with children wearing uh, Fitbits and kids have really small wrists and the Fitbit just doesn't fit snugly around like a five-year-old's wrist. So the signal you get from it is just a bit flaky and that's just like a human factor that, that you have to accept. Also on, on many in various trials I've seen in, in, including one with the kids and, and the cognitive function one, people forget to charge their wearables because they're human beings. So, you know, the data just goes just drops off sometimes. There's also sometimes miscommunications when you're doing a trial where you say, please wear the device every day for 12 hours a day. And someone will carry it in their handbag, thinking that that counts as wearing the device. And you'll get a really weird signal and spend like hours trying to figure out what it means. But you know, it's because someone had misunderstood what it meant, the definition of wearing a wearable. So I think even the great hardware that works, even great hardware that works in the lab really well can struggle in everyday life just because humans. And this makes this makes the data processing really challenging, as I'm sure you know, because either you've got these raw sensors, which are incredibly noisy and are, you know, have this drop-off, or you have consumer or commercial wearables, but then as a data scientist, you're at the mercy of the device API. And you get data whenever it wants to give you data, and it's semi-processed, and you have no control over that. The human factors lead to a lot of software and data science challenges, even if the sensors are great. Yeah, and any <laughs> right, yeah, which is just just so common with human nature being what it is. So, were there any tips, tricks, hacks, best practices that you came across that helped with sort of the, the human compliance side of the equation? Well, I think if you're running a trial with, with lots of people wearing wearables all the time, it's really important to have a good, good communication with everyone in the trial, like a good hotline and regular check-ins to see, you know, how's it going? You know, what, if you're not charging it, why are you not charging it? How can we help you? just understanding why people are not wearing it. And you have to kind of just accept at some point that kids take their wearables off and go run around the garden or go for a swim. There's nothing you can do about that. And it can be frustrating when it comes time to write up the research because you have these gaps that you have to explain. But that's just the nature of like human subject research. So you kind of have to be accepting that the data set is going to be full of holes at the end and not be too upset about it. <laughs> Yeah, patience helps. Okay, the next project was Physio. So this project started with Microsoft Research, where they built these special sensors for kids with cystic fibrosis. Uh, cystic fibrosis is a is a disease that affects the lungs, and there's a buildup of mucus, and so children need to do these physiotherapy exercises to expel the mucus. It's kind of the main treatment is physiotherapy. The physiotherapy is a huge burden for these children. Some of them have said that they dislike the physiotherapy 
more than they dislike the disease because they have to do this coughing, huffing, and then you know, expelling mucus for many times a day. So the idea from Microsoft Research was to make the physiotherapy a little bit more bearable and actually maybe make it fun. So when they're doing the physiotherapy, they have this device that they have to blow into. So they put special pressure sensors into the device so that when the kids are doing the physiotherapy and blowing, the device can actually control a computer game. So the kids, when they're doing their physiotherapy, can then you know, jump from platform to platform and all these different fun games that were developed. So what I was doing was, was analyzing the data that was coming from this trial. So we were doing a trial with UCL and Great Ormond Street Hospital in the UK with, I think it was about... 130, 140 kids. And that is still ongoing. Yeah, so that was really interesting. So seeing how they do their physiotherapy in the wild. So again, this is a situation where normally to test how you're doing, to check in and test how you're doing your physiotherapy, you have to go to the hospital and the physiotherapist watches you. But once you go home, there's no visibility into how you're doing your physiotherapy. So as far as we know, this was the first time that physiotherapists could see what are kids actually doing at home? Are they doing the physiotherapy we think they're doing? And what is the right way to do physiotherapy? What has the best effect? So we're seeing if the games are helping adherence, but also seeing for the first time this real world data about physiotherapy. Yeah, that's fascinating. Having worked with physical therapists in the past, I'm pretty sure they'd want to have one of those for me. Uh, (laughs) between sessions for exactly the reasons you said. Uh, It all sounds great in the physical therapist's office and the moment you leave, they have no idea what's really going on. So I'm seeing that, by the way, as a pattern across a lot of different sort of healthcare-oriented things, which is the provider sees a patient and when they're in front of them and they can get labs right away, there's a certain level of care that they can provide. But what they worry about is what happens when they leave the point of care and their home because you know, things can get into the negative and they'd like to know sooner than later. And patients don't necessarily, they can't keep on top of their biomarkers as efficiently. I'm getting the sense that in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see more and more of this kind of thing. Yeah. And one of the surprising things was we, we wanted to know, so what makes a good physiotherapy session? Okay. So they have to exhale for this long at this kind of frequency and they need to do it in sets, sets of 10 pause, sets of 10 pause. So we wanted to see, okay, so let's let's try to stratify the, the, the patients into how well they adhere to physiotherapy. Do, do they do their, how well do they do their sets? And we found that almost no one was doing sets. So people are prescribing, go and do your sets. And in reality, it's not really being done. This is from the preliminary data. I mean, that's a major learning if you're prescribing something, but in, in reality, it's not happening at all. You know, that was a really surprising finding. So it'll be really interesting to see when the full analysis is done, what they, what they find there. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So I'm just curious, like with your day job and all the things that you have to deal with, you know, how do you continue to learn to stay on top of things within your role and then the industry at large? I'm quite lucky in that my job kind of forces me to stay on top of things because I work with lots of different customers on different projects and they're using different tech stacks. I constantly have to stay up to date. We're constantly learning like new languages, new frameworks, new Python libraries. You know, some customers like to use TensorFlow, some use Keras, some use PyTorch. So we have to be quite, quite flexible. What I enjoy about our team is that we always check what is the 
new and best way to do some things. Before making a decision about technology to use, we always go and do a review of, well, what's out there, pros and cons, therefore we're doing this one, which is very different to academia, where you sort of default to, how have we always done this? Let's continue to do it that way. (laughs) So um, I really enjoy that practice. So my job forces me to stay on top of these things. However, it is very challenging. Data science and machine learning, as you know, is very fast moving. It's quite overwhelming how many new technologies are coming out, some you know, new big data tools, papers and algorithms. It's incredibly hard to stay on top of all of that. But one thing I've learned is just accept that I can't be an expert in everything and just make peace with that. Like I cannot keep up to date with everything that comes out and that's okay. I would definitely agree. I'm guessing that you, you know, you have a you have a great set of teammates that can give you scale as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like we can't all be an expert on everything, but we can rely on on each other because you know people have different interests, and so working in a big team that is quite reassuring. Yeah. So you you know you're known to you know promote positive change as a leader in the industry. I'm curious, what advice might you have? in terms of what companies and entrepreneurs can do who are expanding or building the foundation of their business so that diversity and inclusion are, are baked into what they're doing? So I guess there's, there's first there's attracting diverse talent and then there's retaining diverse talent. So when it comes to attracting diverse talent, I would say definitely expand your search to look in new places instead of you know, always looking at the same grad programs to do your, your hiring. Really review your hiring process too. So do have diverse interviewers. I've been interviewed by very homogenous, all white or male panels before. And I just, it made me feel like the odd one out in the room and made me feel like, are there any women in this company? And one of the things I enjoyed about my current team was that there were diverse people in front of me. And that was just a cue to me that the team was more diverse. So just subtle things like that send a really strong signal to people that are being interviewed. And then I also think that the software engineering and data science interviews need to be revamped a bit. And the fact that you need to kind of go and take time off to study your first year textbook and refresh on obscure first year algorithms that you don't use in your current job, I find really frustrating. It takes a lot of time and it just goes to show that you're not hiring this person for what they can do on the current job if they have to go to some old textbook. Um, So I would love to see more, I think it would be more inclusive to have more project-based interviews, like tell us, you know, tell us about a project that you worked on, step us through your thought process and challenges. And I think that's a much more inclusive way to, to interview people. And then in terms of retaining diverse talent, so once you've got these diverse people, creating an inclusive environment doesn't come, it doesn't seem to come naturally or organically, as we've seen. Like if you just let companies you know carry on the way they have been it, it just doesn't work you need to kind of actively invest in diversity and inclusion and, and actively be able to point to initiatives that like proactively do something so it could be programs that come from the the company at large or it could come from individuals but you need to actively work on it rather than sort of passively hoping that your company will be inclusive and then I guess for, for entrepreneurs, building a diverse team from the start would be a good, a good thing to do. So when you're, as you're growing, you know, build that diverse team from the very first few members that you have. And then think about how you're going to actively work on DNI rather than just crossing fingers that it works out. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me. I think if you're, if you're serious about this 
as a startup entrepreneur founder, you really have to do it on day one. It's not something you can kick the can down the road and worry about in a couple of years. It's too late at that point. Exactly. Yeah. That definitely resonates with me. So sticking with that, I mean, I think I'm sure both of us are constantly looking for great new ML and AI and software engineering minds to bring to the table, to bring to the team and recruiting continues to be challenging. We certainly made a habit of not looking in, like you said, the traditional grad programs for talent and expanding it and trying different areas. And so one idea that uh, we briefly touched on, but I would love for you to expand is sort of if you expand the global talent pool and start looking at places, you know, I know you have a, a strong connection to the community in Africa. What should people know about the current state of machine learning talent in Africa? So what people should know is that it's a really untapped talent pool. And what people might not be aware of is how much activity is going on. Uh, so some of the, the really big tech companies have, have realized that this is a talent pool and have started investing in this talent pool. And I think it might be interesting for, for smaller companies to know. But some of, the, some of the initiatives I'm really excited about are the fact that there's a Microsoft Africa Development Center in Nairobi and Lagos, and they're doing really cool AI and VR stuff, really cutting edge stuff. There's also a Microsoft Africa Research Institute in Kenya which hires um, AI researchers. And then the first major cloud data center that opened in Africa was the Microsoft One in South Africa. Then Google and Facebook have partnered to make a master's in machine learning with the African Institute of Mathematical Sciences. So there's that master's program that's coming out with, I think they have teachers, uh, lecturers from Google and Facebook. DeepMind has started a scholarship for a master's in machine learning with a couple of South African universities. This was a couple of months ago, so that's really new. So they're nurturing talent there. There's the Google AI Center in Ghana. There's some really brilliant homegrown AI startups like InstaDeep in Tunisia that do reinforcement learning. And then there's this wonderful conference called the Deep Learning in Daba, which really brings a lot of these people and organizations together. And each year it's hosted in a different African country with like amazing world-class speakers bringing all of these people together. So there's a really a lot going and I would love for more people to be aware of that and also to, to get involved. It seems like with those names that you mentioned, that surely will start a very positive snowball in growing the ML community in Africa. I mean, we're probably just at the dawn of what it could be in that community, right? I think so. And just the, just the sponsorship and investment is, is really helping. At some of these conferences, students can get sponsored to go to NeurIPS. And that can be like a really life-changing prize for someone. And some of the students that attend, they face incredible difficulties, which kids in Silicon Valley might not. Like I've met students who want to print their poster to present at the conference, but there are no large format poster printers in the whole country. So they have to actually print their poster overseas. And I've met students who can't find a professor who can supervise their master's or PhD project in their country. So they have supervisors in the next door country. And then, I mean, even applying to a university in the US, that fee, just the application fee can be prohibitive. So never mind the cost of conferences and flying to you know, flying to Canada for, for Europe. So, you know, this is completely prohibitive. So these kinds of initiatives that do sponsor travel and study make a huge, huge difference. I can definitely believe that opportunity to 
really enrich their lives and and grow. So you mentioned some really heavy hitting names, you know, the usual names that are investing in that region, you know, Microsoft, Google, DeepMind, which is part of Google. But, you know, one of the constituents that are kind of near and dear to my heart are startups, you know, the, the entrepreneurs that are trying to break through and, and do something really innovative. They might be ex-Google or, or Microsoft people. For them, I'd like to believe that there might that it isn't necessarily the case that only a Google or a Microsoft can participate in the ML community in Africa. That there might be a way for startups to to access this talent and, and maybe allow that talent to have exposure to, you know, the Silicon Valley startup type adventure. And so if I'm a startup entrepreneur and I'm, you know, would like to to try and tap into this fantastic talent pool, ML talent pool in Africa, what might be a good first step? So the first step would be to kind of follow up on any of these initiatives that I've mentioned, get to the conferences where these students are, you know, get involved in these centers of, you know, where you find the talent, because it's not just, you know, we don't just do it for social good. There's real business impact in in hiring diverse people with diverse perspectives, with an understanding of, you know, emerging markets. So this is really beneficial for for businesses, which is why the big companies are doing it. But certainly there is a really vibrant startup community too of, of homegrown startups. And I guess one one thing I'd like to highlight is the, I guess, so there was an article that came out in The Guardian last year, and it was called Silicon Valley has deep pockets for African startups, if you're not. And it was, it was super interesting. They mentioned that, <laughs> they mentioned that basically a lot of the African startups are not led by African people or are not headquartered in Africa at all. So they say that on, on, of the top 10 African-based startups that received the highest amount of venture capital in Africa last year, eight were led by foreigners. And in Kenya, only 6% of startups that received more than a million dollars in 2019 were led by locals. So I think that's really interesting. So if you are building a project or a product that is related to Africa, targeted at Africa, you need to have African representation in, in those companies. And it needs to be like more homegrown, basically. I thought that was a really interesting article. Yeah, I'll have to check it out and maybe put the link in the show notes for the article. So switching gears and talking a little bit about responsible AI and health, I know the conversation has shifted from can we do it to should we do it? What does the process look like to get an answer? And where do you see the biggest pushback? So in my team, we, we deal with a lot of really complex machine learning problems and projects. They're all really different. You know, we work in different industries. We work with computer vision. We work with language. We work with structured data. As we're seeing lots of different projects coming in. And we have to decide, yes, we can do this project, but should we be doing this, this project? We have started a, a review process, a responsible AI ethics review process. And this gives us kind of a sounding board to, to explore pros and cons of doing the project, how people feel about it, and whether it's something that we should be doing. We work through this with our customers. We build a responsible AI document where we, we describe everything and we work through this with our customers. So we ask questions like, can this problem be solved? without technology at all? Is this a social problem? If you must use technology, can it be solved without machine learning? Or could this just be a simple uh, SQL query? Do you need machine learning? Because if you do use machine learning, there's responsibility that comes with that. We do something that I call black mirror brainstorming, 
which is, you know, there's a UK TV show called Black Mirror, which explored how technology goes horribly wrong. So we think about what could go wrong with this technology if it's used in, in, in a way it wasn't intended. We think about, you know, the limits of the data sets that we're working with. How would that limit the model? How should this model be used in production? So we, we ask a, a bunch of different questions. Also, who are the stakeholders? Who would this machine learning system affect? Uh, end users, regulators? Are there any vulnerable groups that it might affect? Uh, children, um, immigrants? Uh, so map out all the stakeholders and then think of the benefits and harms, potential harms to each of these stakeholders. Company reputation even as a stakeholder and map out all of these benefits and harms. So we, th- we have a really methodical way of thinking it through and understanding if the project needs to be reformulated, limited in scope, or you know completely revised. And you said, uh, where do you see the biggest pushback? Uh, the pushback is, is actually not from our customers. Our customers are actually really usually very keen to be involved in this responsible AI process. They want to know like what is, you know, what are the best industry practices. They don't want to be building products that are not that, that are going to be harmful. So they're actually really keen to see our process. The biggest pushback is actually misconception that if you're not developing a model, if you're just putting a model into production, you don't need to think about responsible AI. So people often ask, I'm not developing the model. Model's done. I'm just putting it into production. Do I still need to think about responsible AI? And the answer is definitely yes. You do still need to think about it because the model could become stale. This model's been running for 10 years without training. That's not responsible AI. Like the data has shifted a lot since then. So there's lots of considerations to think about when it gets productionized uh, in terms of responsible AI. I think this is some great great ideas for folks to drill into to, to do a better job in that area. Tempest, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful for you making the time. I know you have a lot on your plate and I've certainly learned a lot. And I know our audience will as well. Thank you so very much. Thanks very much for having me. That was Tempest Van Skyke, PhD, senior machine learning engineer at Microsoft, leader in health tech innovation, and an incredibly impressive and infectious force for change. If you're interested in learning more about Tempest, her LinkedIn is actually a great jumping off point. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please like and rate us. Until next time, I'm Bobby Mukherjee.